following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I, sorry, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He descended, he who descended is the one who all ascended, who also ascended far above the heavens, and he might, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Um, if you've been uh, with us, you know that we've been preaching through the book of Ephesians. Um, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's just a, a hard-hitting dense, theologically dense and rich book of the Bible. Um, and, and really, it's broken up into two categories. So chapters one through three is all about what God has done through Christ Jesus to create the church. The church is not a building. It's not a structure of brick and mortar. The church is a, a group of people who were once dead in their sins. And now through the grace of the gospel, Jesus has made them alive. And, and the way that Paul talks about it at the beginning, he speaks of this as people who have experienced the gospel are now part of a new humanity. There's an old humanity that was following the ways of the world that was just going deeper and deeper like zombies walking through this place. But God has made us alive and created a new humanity, a gospel people. And when we go to chapters 4 through 6, the gears change. So God, it, first, first half is about what God has done. And now 
chapters 4 through 6, which is where we're working our way through right now, talks about what it looks like to walk out this new identity that we have received in Christ. In fact, that's the way that Paul opens up this section. He says, to walk in a manner, verse 1 of chapter 4, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So you've already been called. You already have this identity. You already are this in Christ. We even sang it this morning. I've already been called. I'm already loved. I've already been chosen. And now Paul is saying, live out of that. Walk in, accord- in accordance to your calling. And, and Paul is going to kind of go through all of the different categories or, or the different arenas of our lives. He'll start to talk about parenting and marriage and work and how we interact with authority. But the first stop that Paul makes in unpacking this gospel identity and how we live out of this is speaking about what it looks like to be part of the church. He's talking about what church life looks like when the gospel reshapes our identity and our entire reality. And and the way that Paul talks about this, we see throughout the New Testament, he talks about it in several different ways. First, he talks about being the family of God. We've seen this language already throughout. He said, you've been adopted in God's family. But another illustration that Paul uses to talk about the church is to say the body, right? The body of Christ or the church. You see this all the way back in chapter 1. It's a thread that runs throughout this whole thing. And in the beginning of chapter 4, Paul says, listen, if you are a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, if he is your Lord and Savior, you are a member of the body of Christ. You have been united to Jesus by faith, and in in being united to Jesus, you've been united to your brothers and sisters who hold to the same faith. That's the stuff that he talks about Uh, later on. He says there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one church, one body, one Father of all. He says, you've been united, you've been brought into this body, grafted in. And then he goes a step further. He says, you don't just belong as a member, but you have a role to play as a member of the body. Just as the finger has a unique role, the nose has a unique role, the kneecap has a unique role, every member of the body has a unique role to play in the life of the church. The, the way that he talks about it is, says that you're not just a member, but you are a minister if you are a Christian. Because every Christian has been gifted, right? When when you came to faith, Jesus gave a spiritual gift. And some people, he's given multiple spiritual gifts. Some people, he's given one gift and it's been really strong. But Jesus has poured out his gifts to his people in a way that he saw fit so that people would live into this role as being a minister of the gospel. So not just a member, but a minister. This means that there are no such thing as sidelined Christians, Right? There, there's no such thing. The Bible has no category for just Sunday attenders. The, the, the Bible calls every Christian to live into this role that God has given. In other words, every Christian, whether you're on staff at a church or a parachurch ministry, has been called to full-time ministry. It's part of your identity. You are a minister. And another way to think of it is a servant. That's really what, where we get the word ministry. It's a service to. So we use our gifts that Jesus gives us in honor to glorify Jesus by serving other people. See, that's what ministry looks like. And because Jesus has uniquely gifted every Christian, it might be teaching gifts, it might be hospitality gifts, it might be administration gifts, it might be the gift of faith, the gift of prayer, the gift of healing, right? God has given all of these gifts in order for Sacred City to function the way that God intends us to function. Every member must be active. You are needed here at Sacred City to function the way that God wants this church to function. You bring 
all of the good stuff about you. You bring all of the bad stuff about you, but you bring it and it's needed and, and your gifts are meant to be deployed in service to Jesus. And thankfully, Jesus doesn't just leave us on our own to kind of figure out how to do this, to do the work of the ministry. He tells us that he gives a gift to the church primarily, like the leaders of the church. He talks about the apostles, the prophets, uh, the teachers, the shepherds, to, to equip the saints. So my job here is not to do the ministry, but to equip you to do the work of the ministry as you link arms with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And as you're equipped, you're mobilized to live out this, this, uh, this mission, this ministry. Now, that basically, what I just said right there, was a recap of the last six months. <laughs> it's, it's a recap of the last six months of what we've been going through in, in the book of Ephesians. And really what's, what's been important were the last few weeks as we turn the corner from the indicatives or, or the statements of truth in the first three chapters into the imperative. So, so your being will now influence your doing. It's going to change the way you live your life. And so if you have not uh, been here for the last couple weeks, I would encourage you to go back to the podcast, catch up, relive. Listen, I bet even if you go back and re-listen, it'll, it'll reshape, it'll give you more information, it'll help you understand what we're talking about today. Uh, and, and I just want to encourage you to do that because it's a very important part of our text. It's very crucial for us at Sacred City to understand this piece of Scripture so that we can live into the ministry, the mission that God has called us to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city and the Quad Cities here. And as we looked at those, it sort of set up this, this conversation, what we're going to have today is, what's the purpose of those gifts? What was Jesus' intention in giving the church the gifts according to the measure of, of Christ? What was he getting at? And actually, verses 12 through 13 are going to key us in on the purpose, the, the reasoning the church has gifts. So let's look at the text here. Uh, we're really focusing on uh, verses 12 through 16 today, but I want to back up to, to verse 11 and get kind of a running start as we make our way here. It says this, and he, that is Jesus, and Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Here's, here's the reason. For building up the body of Christ. Until we all, say we all, we all, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Now check this out. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So through this, these couple verses here, we see that there's just so much maturity language. Paul says, what are the gifts for? They're for building up the church. It's for growing the church. It's for maturing the people, the body of Christ. He says, for mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So like if, if a, a church, you know, like, if this is the stature of Christ, and this is a terrible illustration because I'm nothing like Jesus, but I'm, I'm getting there. He's, he's sanctifying me. But if Jesus has my stature, the church would grow up from being a child, right, the small child to grow, 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 and to embody, to represent, to look like the one who has saved us and freed us from our sins, right? This is what mature manhood is, that we would look as a church, we would represent Jesus well. Now, when Paul talks about mature manhood, he's not talking, like, listen to me. Ladies are like, oh my gosh, mature man. He's not talking about church-wide masculinity here. He's not talking about fist bumps and bro hugs and drinking PBR and watching MMA. That's not what he's, he's after here when he's talking about mature manhood. 
What Paul is talking about, he's got this, remember, he's talking about the new humanity, like the new creation, the new people who have been created in the gospel. What he's talking about is, is growing up into the reality of our new humanity. So it's not so much mature manhood, but, but mature humanhood. In fact, this is one of the places where the Bible has such a compelling vision. See, our culture has a weak vision for masculinity. It's just, it's, it's kind of disgusting, honestly. And the Bible presents a, a version of masculinity, a version of manhood that shows men shouldering the load. Men coming alongside people of leading, of caring for, shepherding their families, of leading in the church, of laying their lives down so others may live. This is the vision of masculinity that the Bible points to. In fact, this is one of the, one of the things that as the church we are meant to embody as we represent Jesus who laid his life down for us. So this is what Paul's calling us into in, in mature manhood. It's to live a gospel-saturated life where the gospel just oozes out of us. It's like where, where somebody could say, man, that, the way you did that, the way, the way you just interacted with your missional community or with this person, it reminds me a lot of Jesus. That's the kind of maturity that Paul has envisioned. And a mature church will do that. It will represent Jesus well. When a church is mature, when people step foot in a church that's mature, it's going to feel like Jesus is present. It's going to feel like Jesus is in the room. And it's because he is. Like Jesus is, is here with us. If, if we are the body, Jesus is the head. He, he's, he's the source. He's the origin. He's, he's directing us in all of our ways. And this is what Paul's goal is for us, to be a mature church, a church that represents our Savior well. And Paul's whole goal in life, if you just follow Paul's ministry throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament, his goal in life as a minister of the gospel is to expose as many people as possible to the, the grace and the love and the truth of Jesus. And the primary way that Paul goes about doing that is planting new churches, going to places where there's not yet a gospel community, preaching the gospel, and watching God raise up a community of people that are, are, are tethered together because of the gospel. Now, with it, this maturity and scope, right, that's the whole reason for these gifts of calling the saints to the work of the ministry. The maturity and scope, Paul says to us, listen, church, Jesus wants you to grow up. That's what he wants. He wants you to grow up. He wants us to grow up, actually. And what this implies is that to some degree, there is some immaturity among us. Now, this is true in both an individual sense, like everybody is immature in some regard. No, longer, no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, no longer how long you've been part of a church. In fact, sometimes it doesn't even matter how long you've been part of a church. There's times where people have been in the church for their whole life and have not experienced the gospel in a meaningful way that, that develops maturity. But there's this individual basis that, that Paul's talking about. I want you to grow mature as an individual, but ultimately he's, he's talking about a corporate sense of maturity, right? that we would all together embody maturity. Now, we all know that on some level, there is immaturity in us, right? Can we agree? If you don't believe me, post something on Facebook and go back to it in a couple years, and you're going to be like, I can't believe I said that, right? That means right now, there's some kind of immaturity in us. 
And the Lord, by his grace, will sort of work that out as, as time progresses. But when it comes to acknowledging immaturity, we just don't like to do it. And what really grinds our gears is when other people kind of identify immaturity in us. It's offensive, right? It kind of cuts, especially if you're, you're an educated, you're an enlightened, you're an informed person. You think you kind of got life put together. You understand. And, and when somebody says that, it sort of takes the legs out from underneath you. Because nobody, listen, nobody wants to be looked down on. Right? If somebody says, man, it seems like you've got some immaturity going on in your life. Nobody, nobody, that's not a pleasant truth to come head to head with. Right? It, it, feels, it feels like it's, it's looking down at us, and, and then we get defensive. It's like, I'm not immature. You're immature. Right? That's kind of like a gut reflex. Now, if you hear this, if you hear Paul saying, listen, church, I want you to grow up. And if you think that's how he's talking to you, like he's speaking down at you, like he's got some sort of superiority complex where he's figured out, oh, Paul, the super, right? You got to figure it out, Paul, okay. You know, that's not at all how he's speaking to us. Not at all. Paul is not looking down at us and saying, grow up, guys. Three times he puts himself in our company. He uses this, this phrase, says, we all. He groups us with, with the rest of the church. He groups himself with the rest of the church, not only himself, but the rest of the, the leaders, the apostles, the evangelists, the prophets, the shepherds, the teachers. He says, listen, we all are in this category of immaturity, that I'm immature, you're immature, Paul's immature, the rest of the church is immature, and Jesus wants to do something about it for our good and for his glory. Paul says, we all got to grow up together. Because the reality is that when we're reborn, like when we come to faith, Jesus says, you'll be born again. This is how you enter into the new humanity. You are reborn spiritually. And when you're reborn, you're reborn as spiritual infants. Nobody comes to Christ and has, boom, instantly attained a level of spiritual maturity. And so in one way, you don't have to be embarrassed about your spiritual immaturity. Like, like it's sort of part, part of the question. We don't, we don't make kids feel guilty, right, as they're, they're growing up and learning how life works out. We don't, like, bad parenting would be making your kid feel like an idiot every time they do something immature. But immaturity for kids is sort of par for the course. And, and a loving parent is going to come alongside and say, hey, buddy, maybe we do something different next time. Right? Maybe we use wise decisions, or maybe we, you know, like that, that's part of gracious and loving parenting is, is sort of working the immaturity out of our, our kids. But the best way to stay immature is to deny or to ignore your immaturity. Right? If you get defensive, if you push back, you don't want to hear it, you thought, like, who's Paul to say this? But listen, you're just gonna, you're gonna stay in a spot of immaturity for long, because one of the traits of, immature, of, of maturity is being to, able to acknowledge those places of immaturity in your life. And so Paul invites us, the church, all of us together. He says, guys, I, I want you to leave behind your childish ways. In fact, that's what he says in verse 14. To leave behind, right, that you would no longer be children tossed to and fro. And, and the reason for this the reason that he wants to invite us to, to dismiss or to, to move past our, our childish ways is because children are naturally gullible, right? Children are naturally going to be swayed by people's opinions, that there's a level of instability. Right? I think about that. Like, I don't know, just come to my house for a day, and you can see the level of instability that happens when, when people melt down over not getting the blue plate, 
Guys, I'm telling you, I threw it away this week because I couldn't do it anymore. It's like a, you would think their world is collapsing if they don't get the blue plate. Right, there's this, this instability, there's this fallibility, right? We think we understand, like kids that kind of know it all, they think that. Yet, eh, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> see, listen, and, and the only reason why I can say that is because I was that kid. I, all of that stuff that I said, that was me growing up. And the reason that Paul wants us to leave behind these childish ways is because you cannot afford to stay in a place of immaturity. It's way too dangerous. It's way too costly. He says in verse 14, listen, here's the cost. Here's the risk that you run if you remain in a place of immaturity. He says in verse 14, so we may no longer be children. Here's why. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and, de- uh, uh, by human cunning, by craftiness and defe- deceitful schemes. What Paul is saying here is like, if you choose to stay in a place of immaturity, you will forever be vulnerable. You'll forever be like a boat that's in the storm where the waves are crashing, the wind's pushing. You're out of control. Like you're completely at the will of that storm. You have no, no agency to exercise. You can't sink in anger. You can't do anything to make sure that the ship doesn't go down. Paul says it's dangerous. Immaturity is dangerous. And he identifies three specific threats here of of what endangers us. He says the first thing is false doctrine. Now, what's false doctrine? False doctrine, false doctrine is oftentimes a twisting or warping of God's word. Typically, it's done. I'm going to, instead of letting God's word uh, read me, instead of letting God's word critique me, I'm going to critique God's word. I'm going to create it in a way, I'm going to look at it in a way that it fits my pre-existing conditions, my pre-existing assumptions. Right? And so false doctrine, it, it might have a, a, a hint of truth, but usually it's warped, it's, it's sort of debased. Now sometimes, false doctrine just sort of completely does away with the truth of God's word. It just sort of punts it, it denies it, it sort of has this revisionist mindset. And Thomas Jefferson, uh, he, he boasted about his Bible that he would cut out all of the things that he didn't agree with. Right, that was his version of Christianity. That's, that's false doctrine, creating a set of doctrines, a set of views, a set of beliefs that are man-made. It's its own man-made religion, its own man-made law. That, that is the false doctrine that is pushing people around. And he says there's, there's also human cunning. So false doctrine can be coupled with, with human cunning. And that's when a sinful person takes advantage. Sometimes, sometimes we've got to give people the benefit of the doubt where it's unknowingly, but oftentimes it is intentionally deceiving and preying on vulnerable people. And a lot of the times, it's through a charismatic or celebrity sort of persona, right? Somebody who's, who's very, um, has this draw to themselves, their personality lends to kind of trusting them or, or appreciating what they have to say, and they can take that and they can use it in a way that is going to deceive or to actually, like, you know, overturn what is stable. And the third thing he says is deceitful schemes. 
So here, Paul, it's like he's layering. And all three of these can be used together, right? Sometimes it's, it's one at a time. But here when he gets to the deceitful schemes, he's talking about the works of the deceiver who is Satan, right? The father of lives. The one who is working at all times and all places through his, his you know, he, he's got an army of, of demons, of, of people, well, spiritual entities that are working against the will of God. And he's working in a way that undermines everything that God is for. And he does so by deceit and lies. And one of the ways that he operates is by using the culture at large, right? This sort of couple things like groupthink. The enemy, the schemes of, of the deceiver could be groupthink. Just this large cultural opinion seems to be the majority. It's the majority vote so that we might as well go along. Well, he can use that. It's a scheme that he uses or, or emotionalism. Or technology is another way. Or systems and organizations and cultures within different networks of people. These are all things that can be deployed in a deceitful way to lead people into the storms and to face the danger of their immaturity. Now, depending upon your maturity... When you face these storms, when the wind and the waves come and crash, the more mature you are, the less effect that it has on you, right? Because that's, that's, that's the, the inverse, right? If, if, if immaturity is being children tossed around, maturity looks like a sort of stability, a, a sort of, of stableness in the midst of adversity and, you know, human cunning and this false doctrine. But, but those who are are more immature, or e even that are detached. They might be immature, but de detached from sort of a mature body in Christ that can kind of help keep them, keep them tethered. What could possibly happen then is a complete upheaval of the faith. Because what they experience is that there, there are parts of Christianity, there are doctrines, there are truths of, of the Bible of Christianity that don't jive with the cultural narratives, that don't jive with the progressive ideas and trends of our culture. And so they feel like they're a man in the middle, right? Well, the Bible says this, but the culture says this, and they're just kind of getting pulled back. It's like tug of war, right? They're getting pulled back and forth. And the places where we see this especially are in regards to, to conversation revolving around sexuality, Conversations about politics, conversations about, about leadership. And let me just make a quick plug for a book. Like, I don't have time to get into these, and maybe I'll have time to do a podcast later on, on this week about some of these things I'm on Sacred City Vision Trip. But, but the book Secular Creed, there's, I think there's a copy in the bookstore here, does a great job of kind of speaking into these like hot-button topics that so often leave people kind of shook. But these are the topics where most often the goodness, the beauty, and the truth of the gospel, the truth of God, is demonized and viewed with contempt. And then what happens is this unbiblical doctrine comes in uh, underneath and sort of uh, is, is championed by a charming voice who then de deploys fear and shame tactics, right, the schemes, the deceitful schemes, and they say stuff through a grin trying to sway people away from the truth. And what happens, if you're not ready, it'll toss you around, right? It'll either beat you up or it might even capsize you. Now, it's sad. It's sad because right now there's a big trend going on. 
And it's not really new. Like, it might feel kind of new, but there's this big trend going on in the evangelical world where people are deconstructing their faith. They're moving away from biblical doctrines. Right? They're, they're, they're reconsidering everything about the faith, and they're asking big questions. Now, I think there's something great about that. Right, because we are a reformed church. The idea is that we're a reformed church always reforming according to the word of God, which is truth. But deconstruction is not a reformation according to truth. It's basically moving into a cul-de-sac of public opinion. And it's, it's sad, it's heartbreaking, because you see so many young, once vibrant evangelicals saying, now I'm an ex-evangelical. Like, that, that's a new term. I'm an ex-evangelical. I no longer am holding to a faith. I no longer call my or consider myself a Christian. And, and it's so sad. It's so heart-wrenching to see. I, I spent time this morning, or even last night, just lamenting over this reality. And it's so sad to see that. Nobody wants Paul has a heart, right? This is part of a shepherd teacher. Heart is to see the flock preserved. And by God's grace, Jesus is the good shepherd that when people are off going their own way, if they belong to him, Jesus is the one who go, leaves the 99 to go find the one, to bring them back in. And Jesus has not left, not lost one single sheep that the Father has given him yet. So that's, that's something to hang your hat on. It's sad to see it, but listen, friends, it's nothing new. This Bible that we come to was written in the first century. Paul, I don't know, maybe he had the foresight to see what was going on in the year 2021, but I don't know. I think he has some human, human limitations. But here the thing is that Paul is, is, is addressing this in the first century. So like we're talking not, not um, centuries after Jesus was around, but decades years after Jesus was around. And he says that the storm keeps coming. Like it won't stop. As long as we are here, as long as we're on this side of eternity, the storms will continue to come. The church will be under siege. So we can't stop it, but we can be prepared for it. And, and here's how. See, the common thread between all three of these threats that Paul identifies here that, that could really cause damage to, in a church of, of immaturity, all of it has to deal with the distortion of truth. Every single one of them. It's a distortion, it's a manipulation, it's a debasing of, of truth. Therefore, maturity begins when we know the truth. Jesus says that I am the way and the truth and the life. So you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. See, the truth is something, everybody wants the truth. Nobody wants to live in lies, right? We, we want to base our lives in truth. And so maturity begins when we know the truth, which is why verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 4 is talking about the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son, right? The knowledge of the Son, the unity of the faith. Now, when he talks about the unity of the faith, Paul is not envisioning the church holding hands and singing kumbaya, right? That's not, that's not necessarily, there might be a moment of that. We might do that later. But, but that's not the aim here of the unity of the faith. What he's talking about in the New Testament, when we see, um, when we see the faith, 
It's a phrase, the faith. In the, in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, the faith is referring to a set of doctrines and truth statements that were given to the church by Jesus and the apostles. Now, these primarily pertain to, I mean, you can go back to the Old Testament, to the law, and the way that God has designed human flourishing to take place. But what they're talking about specifically in the New Testament pertains to the gospel of grace and the lordship of Jesus. See, this is what the truth is. The, the faith is referring to the knowledge of the Son. It's knowing who Jesus is, who he is, what he has done. Now, this knowledge isn't merely cognitive. It is cognitive. It is, it is intellectual, right? God gave us a book to study. But it's much more than that. You could say it's, I made up a word this week, it's intel experiational. <laughs> it's three words. It's a mat. You got, yeah. All right, thank you. Thanks for humoring me. It's intel, so it's intellectual. There's a cognitive aspect of this. It's experiential because it's more than just knowing that there's this actual knowing. So even if you go back to chapter 3 of Ephesians, when Paul says that you will have the strength to comprehend what is the love of Christ. He's not just talking that you would know that it's big, but that you would experience the depth of it that you have this firsthand encounter with the truth, that it's not just something up here, but something that permeates every aspect of your being. And then, here's the relational part, is that that pours out into relationship with God and with other people. So intellectual, cognitive, experiential, relational. Intel experiational. It, it's, it's embodied it's embodied truth for all of life. And when this happens among the church, when, when individual Christians, are, they have this cognitive awareness, this experience, this relationship with God, what naturally takes place is a cultivation, a creation of a church community where maturity is the objective. Now, the communal aspect of our maturity is key. Like, maturity cannot be grasped in isolation. It's impossible. First of all, that's unbiblical. That's not a, a biblical idea, but it's impossible. Because the community plays such a huge role in developing our maturity. Now, think of this. When we're a community, when we're together, there is safety in that, right? It's... it's it's so much harder to sink an ocean liner than it is a tugboat, right? If you're off doing your own little to tugboat thing and the waves come crashing in, right, you might lose it. You might capsize. But if we're together, if we're linked like an ocean liner, we can face it all. So this is important for us as Christians to be vitally connected to the local church. Because in, the, in these relationships, we have brothers and sisters who are able to, to retrieve us when we fall overboard, right? We, we have brothers and sisters who are willing to step in and say, hey, I think you lost your grip. Grab a hold. 
right? Brothers and sisters who are willing to, to jump out in the water and scoop us back up when we've lost it. See, that's, that's really what love looks like, of a, a calling back to the truth. And we want to tether each other to the truth of the knowledge of the Son, right? The truth of the gospel, not to our own opinions, not to our own feelings. And it's in this context, like this is, this is one of God's gifts to us as the church, is that in our immaturity, we can borrow the maturity of other people. That's a gift, right? To, to, to lend your ear to a voice and they can help get you on the right path. So there's that reactive element of maturity, but there's also this developmental, it's sort of front-loaded. It's, it's, it's this um, intentional aspect of developing maturity together. Now, Paul, when he, I, I talked about this already. We talked about we all are growing up. He lumps everybody, every Christian in the church together. He, he's indicating that this is a group project. Maturity is a group project. Verse 16 gets at it explicitly. explicitly. If I can find it, it says, from whom the whole body, so all the parts, are joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Together we grow. But how? Where am I at on time? Okay, boy. Oh, boy. Verse 15. Verse 15 tells us how. Check this out. It says, rather, rather than being tossed around by the waves and the winds, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, in every way, into him who is the head, who is Christ, right? Into Christ. We are to grow up in every way who is Christ. This is how we develop maturity among the body of Christ. It's by speaking the truth in love. This is God's design. This is how we together move towards maturity, that we have to speak the truth to each other in love. Now, this is interesting here because as we talk about, excuse me, the gifts, oh my goodness, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that he pours out to the church, a lot of us think, well, I don't have a speaking gift. I'm not a teaching gift. I'm not a prophet. I'm not, you know, I don't have any of those giftings. But here is something that's really interesting where he's saying all the members of the body, all the body is meant to speak the truth in love. It requires the ability to speak, right, to, to, to talk, to, to point people to Jesus, and when we speak the truth, we're speaking the truth, right? The faith, the doctrines of the gospel of Christ. It's not our truth, it's the truth. And when we speak in love, it's not the way that we envision how love should be, but the way that Christ loves us. In fact, you go back to the beginning of chapter 4, where Paul kind of indicates what this love looks like. He says, you've been called... Um, Living into this calling, he says, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. See, this is, this is what biblical love looks like. So when we are speaking the truth in love, we're not loving with our own version of love. We're loving with the version of love that Jesus gives to us. Now, when we hear this, we tend to gravitate to, towards one or the other because in a lot of ways, these two things feel like they're in tension. They're in competition with one another. And so we tend to gravitate towards one way or the other, truth or love. 
Now, here's the thing. If we don't have love, the truth will feel brash. It'll feel disconnected. It will feel like we're being condemned or judged. But if we have love without truth, then we're likely to compromise, avoid conflict, keep the peace, coddle, and stunt other people's growth. And if you neglect one or the other, not only will it stunt your own growth, because part of your maturity is learning how to speak truth and love, it will stunt the growth of those that you're in community with. See, only truth, if we just have truth, it doesn't tell the truth of Jesus' love toward us. And, and love that is detached from truth isn't really love, it's pandering. It's so important for us to live in this tension, to hold the truth and the love, and it's tough work. It might be the hardest work that we have as we live in community with each other, and a lot of times we're going to fail at it. So there's that. But we have to see that the truth is important, that it anchors us, it establishes us, it gives us a firm foundation. It's like the solid rock on which Jesus says, build your life on this. And at the same time, love is important too because love has the ability to disarm us. Love has the ability to, 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 to lay down our, our guards, right, to, to drop the defenses. And it can woo us, it can win us over. Now Paul has devoted his life to the truth, right, making this truth known but he says this in, in 1 Corinthians 13, if I don't have love, I'm just white noise. Like he knows this. You have to have both truth and love. Now, most Christians, if you, you've been around, you've probably heard this before. Um, it, it's a common phrase, speak truth and love. Um, but most of us don't feel good at it. Like most of us feel like I'm pretty incapable or, or I, I'm just prone to fail at this. And, I, and I, I, here's five reasons why I think this real quickly. One, we can't speak truth in love because we don't know the truth. How can you speak truth if you don't understand, if you, you can't comprehend what the, the truth is? And, and if that's where you're at, acknowledging is the first part, and then let's like follow through. How do you develop biblical literacy? How do you gain to know the truth? How do you begin to understand the doctrines? You open up your Bible. Right, you go to missional community where people are studying the word of God together. You, you, you enroll in Porterbrook. There's still last-minute chance to get in on Porterbrook this year if you want to get in on Porterbrook, people. But even thinking about for next year, growing in the truth in that way, go, go to the bookstore and grab a book. We've got a lot of, we are probably the most resource-rich people in the history of humanity. There are all kinds of resources right here at your fingertips that can help you know the truth. There it is. Okay, that's the first one. You don't know the truth. You can't speak the truth because you don't know the truth. Two, you're bad at speaking the truth in love because you lack humility. People don't want to hear you speak the truth because they feel like they are being talked down on. There, there's a, a sense of arrogance. Like you know better that you're more wise, that you just have some sort of superiority over them. Now, if that's the case, now listen, there, th there has to be humility in this immature maturity dynamic where the immature people have to be willing to humble themselves to the wisdom and counsel of those who are mature. But if you're constantly taking a superior position, 
then that can come off. People just don't want to hear you. And if you're always taking that position, it, it might mean, very likely to mean, that you are bad yourself at receiving truth and love. There's this arrogance that, that puts up a wall and keeps other people out. There's a lack of humility, which is a form of immaturity. Third, one of the reasons why I don't speak truth and love is we think we have to say the perfect thing in order to get it across perfectly. Right? Oh, I don't know how to say it just right. I'm probably going to mess it up, and I'm going to probably have, my tone's probably not going to be just perfect. If you think that, you're never going to step into anything. Jesus uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. <laughs> and, and fumbling through and, and, and failing your way forward might be a part of your own maturity process. And in, in, in that process, you help others mature. The fourth reason. Fourth reason we don't speak truth in love is rather than experiencing long-lasting comfort and brotherhood, we settle for a temporary comfort. It's easier to just sweep things under the rug. We don't want to have to deal with it. It's going to be awkward for a minute. And so we we sacrifice long-term comfort for temporary comfort. And and the fifth one goes right into this, is that one of the main reasons why I think we don't speak truth in love or why we're slow to it is because we're afraid of people. There's this fear that I have that if I say the truth in love, and, and, and again, nobody's perfect at this. If I say something, it might offend them, it might run them off, and then what happens to me? I get rejected. They don't want to have anything to do with me. And even people who have the gift of, of speaking the truth, like the, the Enneagram 1s and the Enneagram 8s who can kind of like say it how it is, right? eventually it, you, this kind of fatigues you. You get worn down, and you get gun shy. Like you don't, want to sp- you don't always want to be the bad guy to be the one to speak truth, and so you shy away from it. But here's the thing, Let me, as I bring this to a close. If you're speaking truth in love and people reject you, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting the truth. They're rejecting Jesus. Our goal in speaking truth in love is not to avoid confrontational conversations, is not to, to avoid uh, uh, offending people, though, though we don't want to do needless offense, Right, that's that the loving part, is I'm gonna do it gently, with tenderly, I'm gonna know your frame, I'm gonna approach it with sensitivity. But if we're trying to avoid offending people, then we've lost the gospel because the gospel message is a message of offense. It's brutally honest about who we are and what we're like. It says that you are so sinful, that you're, you're, you're so flawed and broken in and of yourself that Jesus had to die for you. That's what the cross says. This this image that we have laid around the place, it's really offensive. It's so offensive. It says that you were so sinful, Jesus had to die. That's the only way. Right? It speaks the truth about us in this way. But here's the other thing the cross points to. It holds them both in tension, is that you are more loved than you could dare to imagine. That Jesus, yes, you were so sinful, but Jesus willingly went to the cross for you. You were so loved that it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. See, this is, this is the message that us Christians hold on to. Yes, that's offensive, but man, does it win you over. 
Like when you see that, man, does your heart soften toward Jesus. Man, don't you want to just cling to You want to hear, okay, I can receive everything and know that it's going to come to me. Yes, it's going to be hard truth sometimes, but it's going to come to me in the most loving way. People got killed over this message. People are, people are still in Afghanistan, are still getting killed over this message. It's offensive. It, it tells the truth. But it also tells the truth of God's love. It's more glorious than we could dare to imagine. Now, when we keep coming back to this reality of the gospel, what happens is that we grow in the gospel. The more we are, are saturated, the more the gospel comes in our ears and through our eyes, and we experience it with the context of a gospel community. The gospel forms us. The gospel shapes us. We grow deeper and deeper into the gospel. And as we grow in the gospel, we're able to do our part. We're able to live into the ministry that God has given us in our unique way. And when we do that, the body is mobilized. It functions as it ought to work. See, that's what verse 16 gets after. That when we're speaking the truth in love, when we're aiming for maturity, when we're striving to grow up in Christ together, the whole body is joined and held together by Christ. And then it is equipped and then it is working properly and the body grows so that builds itself up in love. See, this is what Paul wants. And when the church is functioning well, when there's a gospel culture that matches the gospel message, when we're speaking the truth in love, there's something, there's something very attractive about that. Because in our culture, you either have to be all in on truth or all in on, on love, right? All in on truth is like you don't have, like you don't have any regard for the people on the other political side, right? This is the truth. You, you can't look at them well. Like it, people who think differently about you, about social issues, you can't, it's all about the truth. You don't have that love. Or, or on the other side, if you just have the love, right, everybody's wandering around not having any idea what to do in this life because there's no truth that anchors us. But the church gives us this, this grounding. It anchors us to the truth in love. And so as we are melded together as the church, it gives us stability. It brings maturity. And people are drawn to this where we can actually confront people and not cancel them. Because that's what the culture does. I'll confront you, and then you're dead to me. And then the church says, I'll confront you, and I'm going to love you like you've never been loved before. Because this is Jesus' disposition towards us. Like, I'm, I'm going to push back against your sin. But man, you've never had a love like mine. And the Lord's Supper proves that this morning, that, that when we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that it was, it was the blood of Christ that was shed for our sins the cup of the new covenant that makes us a new humanity. The body of Christ was broken for us so that we could be mended together as the new body of Christ. And so this morning as we come to the table, remember the gospel. Remember both the truth of who you are and the love of Christ that mends every piece of brokenness. Father, we thank you this morning. I pray that you would take these words, God, and sink them deep into our hearts, that you would do uh, a good work in bringing us to maturity, Father, for your glory, for our good, for the building up of the body of the church, for the mission to advance, to see more people come to know the real Jesus, to go deeper into community, uh, to live on mission, to see churches planted and disciples made right here in the Quad Cities and beyond. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.